last summer and out on our porch was the swarm of bees. They had been there a day and then a day turned into a second day, turned into a third day, debating whether I'm supposed to call somebody or do something and it's our dogs and we're like, what do you do? And, like, and my wife kept saying, why don't you go out there and do something? I'm like, what it's you? See, what you have to know is when I was four, a bee stung me in the ear. And that buzzing sound is like any time I hear it, it's like a freak out moment internally. No matter that at 42, I'm like, I'm way past that. I have overcome that fear. But it doesn't matter. I can say that rationally, but I'm telling you, anytime there's a buzzing sound, now listen, don't be like the jerk who's after service walking up behind me, be like, hey, bzzz. You know, like, I'm going to punch you in the face, okay? Um, I love you. Jesus loves you. We'll work it out. But like, I think I'm getting over that, but that was my childhood fear, okay? And I remember running home. And that buzzing sound was still there. In all these years, that's been a part of a fear that I've had to build up the courage to overcome. But how about you? You had a childhood fear, didn't you? You had to have. Because every kid has them, right? Every single kid I've ever met, you ask them, hey, what are you, what are you fearful of? They're like, oh, man, you got to know. You gotta, and they tell you this, this trauma story, okay? So here's what I want you to do. Turn to your neighborhood, two, three people right around you. What was one of your childhood fears you had? You got 30 seconds. One of your childhood fears, ready, go. I know you're a big tough guy, you probably don't have one now. But. <laughs> Some of you are very passionate about your fears. <laughs> All right, someone give me a couple fears you had, childhood fears that you had, just someone to shout them out. Clowns. Oh, come on. That's an adult fear, okay? How many of you still are afraid of clowns? All right, you are among friends here. So, man, they still scare me. Okay, one more. Basements. Basements, okay, so being down in the basement, maybe being alone, maybe it might be in a fear for some, the dark uh, might be others. Anyone else? Water. Water, tired of what? Something under the bed, okay? All these Chucky, oh. I just had another fear moment uh, dwell up in me. I think I need a moment to pray. Um, but... You know, fear is a, a part of life, and we know that as children, you know, we have these fears, and we, we try to drum up the courage the older we get, and we don't admit to it out loud. Maybe the clown thing we still do, but we don't admit to it, and we say, hey, you know, I've overcome that. I've now got courage, right? I've got this courage to overcome this fear, this thing, this obstacle, 
But the reality is fear still kind of lurks underneath the surface of all of our lives. It's just morphed and become different. In fact, we live uh, what many uh, sociologicals, or sorry, that's not even a word. Um, just people, in, people, people uh, who say, hey, you know, you're in the information age, right? That you've heard that description. And there's some, uh, some folks that have kind of said, hey, we're kind of in the fear age as well. That we live in this undercurrent of fear of the instability of maybe our economy, maybe international troubles and things that come up. We live in this constant set of maybe it's not like you can't put your hands around it type thing, but you can sense it, you can kind of feel it, that maybe there's some of these other fears that are lurking. You got climate change, you got international economies and how unstable they seem to be. You look at just your life and the things that you've had to face over the last five years as our, our economy has kind of gone through these ups and downs, and there's a lot of instability, isn't there? And when that happens, there's usually a lot of undercurrent of fear. Now, we may not call it that, but the reality is you probably are. And the truth is, fear is maybe a big part of life at times. And it's fear of when things don't work out the way you anticipated. Because then you're faced with what? The unknown. And things aren't unfolding the way that you saw them, or maybe the way you planned for them, the way you anticipated that they would go. Uh, maybe you made a, a decision that kind of took you sideways in life, or maybe someone else made a decision that you got affected by. And maybe it was just something in the circumstances, just it was like a perfect storm, so to speak, in your scenario, your circumstances. And all of a sudden, you're faced with this unknown, or you're faced with this fear, and you don't know quite exactly what's going to happen. And in the midst of that, we have this opportunity to either live with this fear, or maybe as believers, someone who's maybe trusted Jesus Christ as the lordship of our life, that we get to live with this godly kind of courage, and that's what I want to talk about tonight as we look at the, the second part of chapter one of the book of Philippians. Now, Brandon started off, our teaching team is going to teach through this, uh, this series. I'm going to do a couple, and Kimberly, and, and Brian, and Brandon. And so our team's going to kind of lead us through this. And excited for you to hear from, from different voices and, and people that are kind of leaning into this text. This is an interesting book. In fact, often this book is, is taught from this notion of, of joy, this theme of joy. And you'll, you'll certainly find the theme of joy in the book of Philippians. It's fascinating where Paul wrote this, and you see this theme of joy. He's in prison. He's chained to a guard, literally chained to a guard, like 12, 18 inches away from him for, for months like, this isn't like an overnight stay, wow, I made a bad decision. No, this is like he's there, all right? And it's the midst of this. In fact, you have to think back to Paul's agenda. He was at Philippians with them. Uh, this, he's writing to this particular church. He was with them six years earlier. And it's a passionate church, a church that he loves very much, that has a fond relationship with him. And he's writing back a response to them. In the first part of chapter one, we kind of looked at this notion that, you know, that one of the true markers of someone of faith, of a Christian faith, is that they are growing in this life-changing love for God and others. That that's what he's writing to this church. He's saying, look, I, I pray that you would just be growing in this love for God and this love for people. He doesn't even talk about his scenario. He doesn't even mention his situation until halfway through chapter one. 
And that's what I want to look at tonight. In fact, I want to look at just the verse 12 here. Here's what it says, okay? So now we're finally getting to Paul's story a little bit, not just his prayers and how much he loved this church and what he's calling for them, what he's praying for them, what he wishes for them. Now he's saying, okay, okay, a little update on me. He says, hey, I want you to know, these are people he dearly loves six years early. He's writing to them. I want you to know, brothers, I want you to know, sisters, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's fascinating to me. He's living under house arrest with a palace guard chained to him every six hours. That guard changes. Every six hours, every single day, this is his life. This is his scenario. And he says to them, hey, I want you to know what's going on with me. I want you to know what's really happened. And what's really happened is the gospel is advancing from a guy in prison. What? What? Like, that doesn't seem to go together, does it? It doesn't seem like that should be the scenario. That that wouldn't be how I started my story. I'd be like, hey, this sticks. Can you send some cereal? Because they don't have anything good here. You know, just, could could you send it? Remember, this is Philippians Church. They're, They're sending this gift to Paul because they've heard about all these things. Could I tell you maybe an example of how Paul could have written maybe this part of his story? Can I just read you this? I made this up. Paul might have begun this section, hey, if anyone else thinks he has reason to be afraid, I have more. I have been beaten. I've been chased by mobs. I've been hunted. I've been shipwrecked. I've been stuck in prison, sometimes half starving, not knowing whether I live or whether I'm going to die, with even Christian brothers and sisters out making trouble for me, embedded in a culture openly disdainful of and sometimes violently opposed to what you and I have staked our entire lives upon. That's my reality. He could have started the letter with that, and that would have been completely true. Paul left the Philippian church and said, hey, I want to go preach the gospel in Asia, right? And then he makes this turn back toward Jerusalem, and people say, hey, Paul, don't go back to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to go into Jerusalem anyway, and he gets there, and then somehow this mob comes out, and they go after Paul, and so much so the guards actually pull him in under house arrest there to protect him from his very own life, and 40 people, or a group of men, kind of dedicate 40 days of not eating or drinking until Paul is dead, all right? So he's got this lynch mob after him. And he appeals, because he's got Roman blood, he appeals to the emperor. And now he's sent off on this ship that actually wrecks out at sea. And they finally make it. All the people survive. They're praying. They make it to this island of Malta. They build this giant bonfire to get warm. And out comes this snake and bites him on the hand. That's a bad day. That's a bad day. Like if I had that day, I'd be like, God, I'm done. I'm like supposed to be doing this for you. What's the deal? And God protects him from there. He finally makes it. Now he's under house arrest back in Rome waiting to meet the emperor that he appealed to. And who's this emperor? Is he a nice guy? No. And he's under house arrest. And I just want you to listen to what Paul really wrote. I hardly ever do this where I read a giant chunk of scripture, but I just want to read the rest of chapter one to you. And if it's easier for you to concentrate by not reading along, then just listen. And then I want us to kind of dive into this and I want to pull some things out for us that I think speaks about this godly courage 
in the opposition of this fear that certainly should have been overwhelming Paul. And the, the opposition of fear and the unknown that certainly overwhelms us at times, true? We're not under house arrest and we're not in this particular situation, but fear raises its, its ugly face in front of us often, doesn't it? And Paul's there. And so here's what he writes. So just let this wash over you. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else of why I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of some selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they could stir up trouble for me while I'm here in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will finally continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what should I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ which is way better. But it's more necessary for me to remain in the body. Convinced of that, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to me on behalf of Christ, not only granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here I still have. Paul writes these incredible words from a position and from a circumstance of confinement that wouldn't be what any of us would choose. It's not what he desired, it's not what he wanted. He wanted to go throughout Asia and he wanted to keep preaching and planting churches and now he's living under house arrest and he says, look, I want you to know the gospel still advances. It's fascinating that he uses a military term here. Why? Well, he's living in the first century, right? Underneath a mighty Rome, who speaks in military terms, right? This is the mighty Rome, who, when they advance, other people retreat, right? That's how they conquered a lot of the people, is they would take down one little establishment, and then fear would ripple through the rest of the country. And people, before they even got there, would hear them coming and would surrender, because they were advancing. 
And here's Paul writing with a military term. I want you to know that, yeah, it may look like I'm stopped and it may look like God's story has kind of ceased, but I want you to know what story's really advancing here. And it's not the guy of the prison in which I sit. It's of the God whom I serve. His story is advancing, even when it looks like maybe it shouldn't be. But his story is advancing. And he says the gospel just keeps advancing. See, Paul, he lived for a greater story than his own. And friends, I think that's the challenge in our generation. In our generation, one of the greatest stories that we love to advance is our own. In every way, shape, and form, and this isn't a political stance, and this isn't a commentary on social media or any of that. It's simply the reality in which we live. We long to advance our own story. That's the plight of humanity. That's the call that we all have to, to battle, and yet in this story, if Paul were, were trying to serve himself, his story's over. His story's toast in this minute. And yet, he's living for a bigger story. And he's saying, that's the story I care about most. Because that's the story that will keep rolling on long after me, Paul, I'm gone. Whether I live or die, it doesn't matter. I know where I'm going. And I know the story I'm, I'm championing is not my own story. It's the story that will keep being told and will keep changing lives long after I'm gone. Friends, don't give your greatest commitment to the smallest cause that you know. Live for yourself. It's okay for that. It's not, you don't have to ignore yourself. But don't, don't make everything about you. Don't try to make yourself the biggest cause you know because you will live you'll wake up one day and realize that wasn't a big enough story. And you'll wake up deflated and realize, I missed it. I missed the opportunity to live something bigger than myself. It's not wrong to think about yourself. It's not wrong to, to want to advance or to use your story to grow in your talents and abilities. That's all good. Just don't make that the only cause. Live for a bigger cause live for a bigger story. And that's what Paul is championing. He's saying, look, it may look on the outside, looking in, that my story has stopped, but you want, I want you to know I'm actually unfolded into this bigger story of Jesus, and his story is doing just fine. In fact, here's the killer thing. I've got these guards that every single six hours, a new one comes in, and I get to share the gospel with them. Think about it. The palace guards were 9,000 strategically trained guards of the emperor. Their job was to advance the cause of Rome and to protect the Roman emperor. Who has a captive audience with the most powerful guards in the entire country? But Paul. So Paul doesn't see his confinement as restricting he sees this as a perfect opportunity to infiltrate an entire country. Hey, hey, we're going to be hanging out for the next six hours here. 
My name is Paul. Um, and, uh, you know, we're 18 inches away, so I tried to brush my teeth. But I'd like you to know a little bit about my story. Can I tell you? I mean, you got nothing to do for six hours. I'm older. I can't run away from you. You were chained here. So pull up a cup of tea, and let's just talk a little while. And so Paul gets the opportunity every six hours to find new people and new leaders. Who do you think advances into leadership positions all around Rome? Maybe the most highly trained people in Rome get to move into different positions in advancement. Hmm, maybe God's actually up to something that at first glance looks like this stinks, right? Can you begin to see this, how this flips and how this turns? And Paul's saying, I, I don't see this as an opportunity to sulk. I see this as an opportunity for courage to move forward. See, courage and encourages courage. Because not only is Paul living this out, but he's beginning to see and hear the rumbles of other Christian leaders and other followers of Jesus who are beginning to have their courage stoked. And this, they begin sharing the gospel and sharing the story of Jesus with greater courage and less fear, right? That's what he's hearing about. That's the stories he's beginning to hear. He says, not only have I been able to kind of share the Jesus story in this whole palace guard, but I'm hearing about these people who are sharing Jesus everywhere they go with a greater boldness because I'm here. It's because of my chains, not in spite of. It's because of my chains, he says, that this gospel story is beginning to spread. See, a single act of courage can create a firestorm of bravery, can it? You were a witness to this, perhaps. Way back, uh, at least I remember this day. Do you remember this next picture here in Tiananmen Square? This is Tiananmen Square, the protesters, who or I got to stand in this square in China. And uh, I remember this top picture of this one guy, of this regime that was coming in to stomp out the protesters, and literally to this day, they have no record of how many people were hurt or killed. Conveniently, those records are lost. But to stomp out the student revolt that was happening in China. And one guy walks up to this parade of tanks that's getting ready to go into Tiananmen Square, and he stands in front. Did anyone ever remember seeing this? Back in the late 89 is when this happened, the summer of 89. And one guy's courage spark the courage of all those gathered in that square and to begin to push back and to say, look, I, I know maybe, maybe they didn't eventually win, but they began to push and say, this is not okay for the way things are happening. And this was obviously politically motivated somewhat, but this notion of, of one person's courage can start this firestorm of bravery. And that's what we begin to see in the life of Paul as he lives with this godly courage and it begins to encourage the courage of others. And they begin to take on this notion of saying, I'm gonna live for a greater story. And I'm not gonna settle just for my own story and my own advancement. I wanna live for something bigger, something that outlives me, something that's better and, and broader than just my circumstances that I can control or that I can create or that I think I can somehow try to manage because even that I don't have full control over. But I wanna live for something greater. Paul goes on, verse 16, he says these words, um, 
the latter do so in love, knowing I am put here. I want you to underline that in your Bible. I am put here. Friends, as followers of Jesus, we live with the reality underneath God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign over all things. That doesn't mean we don't face consequences for our decisions, we do, okay? But that means even in the midst of that, God has sovereign control over that and that he can work in that and through that. I am put here, Paul says. Remember what David said in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I'm not the shepherd. And so many folks and so many of us and so many times in my own life, I like to live as the shepherd. I got it, God. I got it. Yeah, we'll go over. We'll get this church planned in three months. No big deal. We got it. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. You know, maybe there's always these moments where it's a self-gut check and say, no, you know what? I can try to be the shepherd of my own life, and it usually doesn't end out very well. It doesn't play out the best possible way. And David stumbled into something, and Paul's remembering something here. I am put here. Whatever situation or scenario you're in, God has sovereignty over that. Be in that moment. Don't spend your life trying to be in the next one and miss the now. God has you there for a reason. Now, it may have been through some faulty decisions and faulty choices, and, and we can all try to figure all that out, but we're, maybe we're just living under this reality that, okay, God, I trust that you have ultimate control. And as much control as I think I have, you're actually the one in charge. I wrote this in my notes. The Bible declares that the Lord is our shepherd, not our sugar daddy. The Lord is our shepherd, not my sugar daddy. He, he's not the one that's always gonna give me everything I want not gonna give me always cushy circumstances and wonderful situations, right? Because the truth is, as a parent, you don't do that either. My kids wanna eat Pop-Tarts all day. I don't let them eat Pop-Tarts all day, half the day. <laughs> Why? Because I'm a good dad. A good dad says, Pop-Tarts half a day, I'll let you get away with that. All day, no. Because I know I gotta answer to mama when she gets home and that ain't good. That ain't going to work out well for either one of us. And I, I dream something better for them, right? That's why as parents, sometimes we have to discipline. That's why as parents, sometimes we put our kids in situations where we're stretching them a little, a little bit. Why? Because that's best for them. You had that growing up. That's why as aunts and uncles, are, and you don't give everything to your, your nieces and nephews, right? Because you know a little bit more. You have a little bit more experience. And God says, look, I'm your shepherd. I will lead you and guide you. And listen, I'm not your sugar daddy, but I'm gonna put you in situations where you may be uncomfortable. And you may not like it, but it's gonna make you better. It's gonna make you more who I'm creating and calling you to become. And I know that. And you may not see it in that moment. So I know what's best for you. God is sovereign. He is wise and he is good, friends. And we have to live with that notion. We have to live underneath that understanding. I wrote in uh, Isaiah, we like these verses. Sometimes we quote them. Isaiah chapter 55, verse eight and nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither 
are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we love that verse. We, we love what that says. We just don't like the reality of it. Because what we want is for God to see everything from my perspective. God, this didn't work out well at work. Fix that. How come you don't see it my way? God, this relationship went sideways and I got hurt. Fix them, which really means hurt them, right? And we want God to see it our way. And the truth is, what Isaiah is capturing here is God doesn't see it your way. He actually sees it in a better way, and that's what we ought to be thankful for, and that he doesn't see it just the way you see it. My thoughts are not like your thoughts. My ways are not like your ways, and that's a blessing, not a curse. And we need to be thankful for that. The truth is the Holy Spirit is active in our lives. He choreographs our lives. This is what Paul's kind of getting at in verse 19. He says, look, I want you to know all these things that are happening, for I know that through your prayers, the prayers that this Philippian church is praying for him, that through your prayers and through the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. The word help there literally means the same word we in English use for choreograph. In, in, in Greek, it's literally this choreograph type word that the Spirit of Christ is actually choreographing your life. Do you believe that? That's part of the sovereignty of God. And that doesn't mean everything's gonna work out rosy. And it doesn't mean everything's gonna be perfect and easy. It means there's gonna maybe be some stretches that you've gotta do to grow your character that maybe takes you to a place that brings you to be more who you are created and rescued to become. We've all logged time in there, right? And so God's saying, look, you are not here accidentally. You are not here coincidentally. You are here providentially. In every situation you're in, God has you. He's choreographing what that situation can do within your character, within who he's calling you to become. Don't run too fast through that and miss what he's trying to do within you and what he can do through you in that situation, in that season of life. The Spirit of God is choreographing all these things. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8.28? For he causes all things to work together for good. Doesn't say all things are good, right? Doesn't say everything that happens to you is good. That's not what Paul's saying. What he says there in Romans 8.28 is God causes all things to work together for good. That even the, the stuff that we don't like and the misfortunes and the hurts and the pains and whether it's our decision or so, whatever that may be in your situation, those dark moments that you're in in life means God can actually even use that in the way he choreographs and the way he's at work in your life and in his sovereignty to bring you to something better. How many of you like cake? Come on. I love cake. You know what I don't love about cake? In fact, I love cake so much. The Costco cake, oh, mine. Have you had the Costco cake? Where it's like that, oh, we need to get one of those next week just to have cake. And so uh, maybe I'll do that. But I love cake. But you, you think about all the ingredients that go into cake. You probably don't find yourself at home just eating tablespoons of salt, right? 
You don't probably break out two eggs, unless you're one of those macho dudes, um, and just crack them open over your face and, and eat them, right? Raw egg. You're probably not doing that. You're probably not just, you know, grabbing some brown sugar and just saying, man, brown sugar, blah, blah, and eating it, right? But you put all of those ingredients together with the other ingredients that are necessary, and you get something good. You get cake. Jesus invented cake. It's awesome. <laughs> cake will be served in heaven. And the reality that we have to live in is that sometimes in life, we're going to get some sweet things, some of those sweet ingredients and, and things that come your way, and it's good. And you might even eat that particular ingredient well. But there's going to be some other ingredients that kind of come your way that are bleh. And individually, they're not good. But when God mixes it all together and you're able to look back a little bit and you're able to see that was good. It was good for me. And it may mean that some scenarios that you have to go through, friends, and I know some of you have been through some I wouldn't wish on anybody. And I'm so sorry. I really am. But I, I promise you, keep going. Live with that godly courage that Paul is demonstrating and calling us to because in the midst of that, some amazing things can happen and you will one day look back and see that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And maybe it wasn't a good thing that you're going through. Uh, godly courage, uh, you can read through here, I'll just highlight this. Godly courage exalts Christ and courage expressed is worship. When you live in the face of what you have to battle and what you have to navigate and you continue to move forward in godly courage, it's a form of worship, friends. Paul is worshiping in this midst of 18 inches away from a God who has to watch him and guard him under house arrest. And Paul chooses in this moment to live out what he wrote in Romans chapter 12, let your life be worshiped. In every scenario, live in a way where you worship and choose to say, God, even in the midst of this moment that I don't like and I don't want, I'm gonna choose to worship you. I'm gonna live for a greater story and I want you to get the glory. However this shakes out, I want you to get the glory. And that's how Paul's living. He's saying courage is a sign to those who's who will really be king? He writes kind of this at the end, of uh, verse 27 through 30. He says, you live with this courage. Whatever happens, whatever happens, you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? That's what he's saying. And he says, in doing so, you're gonna prove something. This is early on first century, right? Paul's hanging out with these macho UFC fighter you know, guys that are gonna have leadership positions and when does the mighty Rome convert? Several hundred years later, right? But the reality is Rome fell. We talked about this before. Um, go to the Colosseum and what you'll see is ruins and you'll see a cross erected where the emperor used to sit. That in itself is an amazing picture that here's Rome that tried to stomp out this whole little Christian movement, right? And the only thing that's still moving forward, the only thing still advancing, to use Paul's terms, is God's story, not Rome's story, right? So what looked like it was the other way around in this scenario, Paul is saying, no, 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 we're part on the bigger team, we're on the bigger story, and that's gonna be just fine. 
God's story is going to keep advancing. Live with this ultimate destiny, that the ultimate destiny depends on who's truly king. And it wasn't Rome, and it wasn't the emperor he was going to go meet with. So here's maybe three things I'd give you um, as I was working through this passage this week. One is this, put the gospel at the center of your life. Put the gospel, the story of Jesus, at the center of your life, the best you know how. Don't make the center of your life about you. You're allowed to be in it. You got a starring role in your story, okay? But you're not the superstar in your story. There's one, and it's not you, and it's not me. It's Jesus. He earned the right for that when he rescued you. He earned the right for that to say, look, your story is now part of my story and you're gonna actually like that better because your story wouldn't end very well if it was just you. But you actually get to be in my story. And so I'm the superstar here and it's not because I'm a diva, it's because I love you. And I want you to find your niche in this story and I have a place for you. And so live and put the gospel at the center of your thinking, at the center of your emotions, at the center of your ambitions, at the center of your dreams, and everything you build your life on. Idols, the things that clamor for our attention and our affection and, and our, our desires, they will all let you down if you base your entire life on those things and the pursuit of those things, whatever that may be whether it's success, whether that's control, whether that's whatever scenario you want to play out in your own mind. Keep the gospel at the center of your life. Secondly, flourish where God puts you. Paul says, I am put here. It may not be what I've chosen. It may not be what I've wished. It may not be what I saw playing out but I am put here. Why? Because I live under the sovereignty of God. And while I'm here in this moment and while I'm here in now, I'm not going to be so consumed with next that I miss now. God has me right here, right now for something, for my good and for the good of others and what he could do through me and in me. And so flourish where you're planted. You've been put there. You could become bitter or you can become better. The choice is yours. In whatever situation you find yourself in. And when it's one of those dark ones, you can become bitter at that, and you can build that up, or you can say, God, would you make me better through this? Would you help me to grow? Would you live with the mindset that God places you specifically, and he can work in you in that moment with great precision just fine? You don't need to be in a different situation for him to work and, and do his best. Be there. Third is uh, turn your prison into a pulpit. That's what Paul did. I've got this prison. I'm stuck here. Nothing here looks good. I don't like it. These guys stink, and they're 18 inches away from me, and they come in here every six hours. There's a new one. And Paul said, you know what, I can either live here in this prison or I can turn this into a pulpit for the bigger story. And so that's what he did. Most of life, if we're honest, if we reflect back, we see the point of it. But when you're in the middle of it, sometimes you don't, right? 
often, when we're in the middle of the situations and scenarios that you face, you, you, we often ask the one question that comes to mind. Why? Why is this happening? What's going on? I don't get it. But when we look back, we're able to see something that God did in us and through us in those moments. And so tonight, as we continue into uh, a time of communion and worship, I want us to look back because we serve the resurrected Christ, friends. When the crucifixion happened, it looked like the story of Jesus is over. In fact, everything about that scenario, everything about that story screams the end, right? In fact, isn't that why the disciples go into hiding? They're like, we're toast. Everything we banked our entire life on is gone. This is over. <laughs> or was it just getting started? That's what we celebrate when we take communion, is we remember that what looked like it was over is actually a new beginning. And because of Jesus' life and his death, and most importantly, his resurrection, we get to face every moment we're in that may look and feel like it's the end, and we get to live as resurrected people, people of the resurrection who say, this isn't the end. God can continue to write the next chapter of this story. I may not have picked it, I may not have wanted it to unfold this way, but God, you can work in the midst of it. You're sovereign. Your story is gonna outlast mine, and I wanna be unfolded into yours. And so, Father, as we move into worship, God, we wanna be a people that live under your direction, that your spirit can choreograph our life, that the prayers of our friends encourage us and they embolden us. Encourage, displayed, it, it just lights this firestorm of bravery within us. And those are good things. But ultimately, we need your courage to be poured into us that you call us forward into a greater story. We remember, we remember Jesus. And as we worship and sing about him, in these next few moments, would you whisper to each one of us, what's something that we need to take with us this week? What's something that we need to move forward in as we begin to live this life where godly courage is on display? And so Father, may you receive all the worship and all the glory. Would you stir our hearts with our takeaway for each and every single person in here? What's for us? And as we remember in communion, we celebrate that we are resurrected people. We're not people of a crucifixion. We're people of the resurrection. That what looks like the end is actually a new beginning in you and that you make all things new. Father, we love you. Would you stir us tonight?